Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities, coming to you outside today on a beautiful morning up at Red Rocks Park, overlooking the city. Uh, just stopped by and climbed the steps at what is one of the most gorgeous, stunning concert venues in the world. Uh, also one of the most beautiful places to photograph in the world, which is kind of why I'm here. Uh, on the show today, we have an interview so big it didn't fit into one episode. I have been a fan of photographer Bob Wick for years. Bob might have what is the best job in the country. He takes beautiful pictures of America's public lands, specifically Bureau of Land Management lands across the West. You may not know Bob Wick by name, but you have almost certainly seen his work. So as an amateur photographer myself, I was so excited when Bob agreed to join us and talk about his remarkable career, which, oddly enough, doesn't even officially include photography as part of his job description. So this is a two-parter. This first episode is all about Bob's career and how the Bureau of Land Management has changed over the last 30 years. And this is also a video episode. You can find it on YouTube or Facebook. There you will get to see some of Bob's best work as we talk about it. Uh, if you're listening to this in a podcast app that supports chapter markers, you will probably see pictures as we go as well, but please don't look down if you're driving. Uh, and then next week, we're going to do a bonus episode diving into the nitty gritty of outdoor photography for photo geeks like me. But first, let's do the news. Interior Secretary Deb Holland was here in Colorado last week talking about a couple of bills that we have featured here on the podcast. That includes the Colorado Wilderness Act, sponsored by Congresswoman Diana DeGette, as well as the Colorado Outdoor Recreation Economy Act, or CORE Act, from Congressman Joe Neguse and Senator Michael Bennett. But the main reason for the Secretary's visit was looking at how to fix the Bureau of Land Management headquarters. Remember, that's the building in Grand Junction, Colorado, where a grand whopping Three employees who were at the old headquarters in Washington, D.C., eventually moved after former Interior Secretary David Bernhardt effectively and intentionally broke the agency. Even today, there are fewer than 40 people working in that Grand Junction office. There are about 80 open and unfilled positions. So something is not not working here at all. And the solution is a pretty obvious one to us. You just have to admit the whole thing was a failure. It was designed to force career expertise out, and it's time to rebuild the agency headquarters back in Washington. Now, it's understandable that folks like Senator Bennett, Senator John Hickenlooper want to keep jobs in Colorado, even if it's just 40 of them. So Secretary Holland came out to Grand Junction to listen to BLM employees, to listen to members of the community before she decides what to do next. And of course, the Bureau still doesn't have a Senate-confirmed director. It has not had one for four and a half years now, but we are finally getting close. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee last week deadlocked 10-10 on the nomination of Tracy Stone Manning to run the Bureau. That vote sent it to the Senate, which voted 50-49 to 49 on Tuesday afternoon to move her nomination to the Senate floor. Head back one episode for the background on the really absurd character assassination campaign that is being waged against Tracy. But I think there is another takeaway here that everyone needs to consider. The fight here truly is not over what 
Tracy Stone Manning did or did not do with Earth First 30 years ago. The record there is clear. Nothing new has come out since her nomination was announced. Tracy found out that people spiked trees. She then retyped an anonymous letter warning the Forest Service about it. And a few years later, she testified about it and sent the tree spikers to prison. That's it. There is truly nothing new there. Either that's unconscionable to you or it's the right thing. But nothing has changed over the last several months. So what is really going on? What is behind this vitriol against Tracy? Well, the fight here is is over how the timber wars ended 20, 30 years ago. I was on the road with my kids earlier this month. We listened to a really excellent podcast series called Timber Wars from Oregon Public Broadcasting. I will drop a link to that into the show notes. The The podcast covers tree spiking, protests in the forests, the spotted owl, all of that. But what I took away from the podcast is how the timber wars fundamentally changed the Forest Service. It had been for a century an agency dedicated to selling timber. It was an agricultural agency, still part of USDA to this day. But then in the 90s, it changed into an agency that managed ecosystems. Now, some of that change happened because of the Clinton administration. Some of it happened under court orders. But the Forest Service of today, while it still does sell timber, of course, it manages ecosystems first. And a lot of people still don't like that fact 30 years later. So the fight over Tracy Stone Manning is really an attempt to relitigate the timber wars with the knowledge that the Bureau of Land Management is in the midst of a similar transformation, albeit one that is slower and at least hopefully less contentious. And what was only slightly jokingly referred to as the Bureau of Leasing and Mining for decades is also becoming an agency that manages ecosystems first. David Bernhardt tried to stop that transformation by getting rid of BLM headquarters. It's not going to work. He only delayed the inevitable. BLM will, of course, still manage grazing. There will still be mining and oil drilling on public lands for decades to come. But all of that extraction will be part of ecosystem management led by good science. Courts have made that very clear. The Biden administration has made it clear as well. Following the best science is the law of the land. Following climate science is increasingly a part of that. And so as you listen to Bob Wick here in this episode, reflect on his 30 plus years with the Bureau of Land Management. Think about that fundamental change. And when Tracy Stone Manning becomes the BLM director, which will happen any day now, Think about how far we have come in how we manage our American ecosystems and how far we still have to go. We are thrilled to be joined today by wilderness specialist and the de facto landscape photographer for the Bureau of Land Management, Bob Wick. If you have ever admired the public lands imagery in one of our research reports, chances are you are looking at a photo taken by Bob Wick. And although Bob may not be aware of his rock star status outside the Bureau, the Center for Western Priorities and many other conservation organizations rely on his photographs to help us communicate about the importance of public lands across the country. His work has also been featured on postage stamps commemorating America's wild and scenic river system. If you look up any number of BLM lands on Wikipedia, you will probably find a Bob Wick photograph there as well. And I 
have to break the news, unfortunately, that Bob is retiring at the end of this month. He agreed to join us here on the podcast to share some insight into why he is so good at what he does and how he got here in his remarkable career. So, Bob Wick, welcome to The Landscape. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for that very gracious introduction. I really appreciate it. I want to start with the basics. I want to know how a guy who grew up in Western Pennsylvania, you earned two forestry degrees in the Mid-Atlantic region, and then you find your way somehow to a BLM office in Canyon City, Colorado, writing wilderness study reports. How do you how do you land there? Well, you know, when I was younger, the Forest Service was kind of the go-to agency for forestry majors, natural resource specialists, and and going to school at both Penn State and Virginia Tech, all of our textbooks would always have this little paragraph at the end of a chapter saying, oh yeah, and there's this other federal agency, the the BLM that manages more federal land than any other agency, and and they have forest resources too, period. That was it. You know, so it was a totally unknown agency to me. Um, but actually, when I was in grad school, one of my uh, professors knew a person out in Canyon City, and they were looking for a, a temporary em- uh, employee. And I put in for the position thinking, wow, I've always wanted to be out west. I'd never been west of the Mississippi. So landed in Colorado right at the tail end of uh, the wilderness study process. So uh, it was a, a great way to go west. I drove my pickup truck out and haven't been back since other than for visits. And and when when are we talking about there when you started? Uh, this was in March of 1988, so over 33 years ago. So, I mean, that's one of the things we're going to get to, I think, is how the agency has evolved over those years. But start with your work as a wilderness specialist. I mean, what does your day-to-day life look like uh, working for the agency on wilderness issues? Well, right now I'm actually, I work for our headquarters office. Um, I've been here for about seven years now, but I have uh, i only took the job on the condition that I could stay out West back when our headquarters was in DC. So I've always been sure. based out of Sacramento, but I do a lot of troubleshooting whenever problems come up with field offices or state offices um, with policy questions, budget questions. Um, everyone calls my job the dream job, which it is, but I spend a lot more time reviewing EIS documents and writing policy than I do, uh, being behind the camera. So, uh, I do love the fact that I get to deal with every state, uh, in the West and Alaska on wilderness issues. Each state in the BLM is very different and unique. So it's, it's a fun job. Well, so obviously, yeah, that 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 dream job, you look at your pictures and you think, wow, this guy has literally the best job in the entire federal government, uh, getting to travel to these places, taking these amazing photos. Uh, And that to me, number one, is, is amazing considering you have no formal photography training. So how did your photography work end up becoming part of what you do uh, as a wilderness specialist? Well, I started out, you know, a lot of times you're multi-hatted in field offices. And with the BLM Canyon City office, um, I finished my work on the wilderness study reports early. And I started working on some recreation projects, including getting the Gold Belt Tour Scenic Byway uh, designated in, in Colorado. And we 
did a brochure for the gold belt tour needed uh, photos for it. So I was able to use a bunch of my photos in, in the brochure. And that was sort of a starting point. And from there, it just continued on and on. Uh, I started getting a, a reputation as a good photographer. So back then, people would ask, you know, could you send us some slides of your area for this national publication? And there were times I never got the same slides back. I'd get something from a different state. It was <laughs> such an old archaic system. But but yeah, that just, um, started growing and growing. And I've always had an interest in photography. Um, I bought my first SLR when I was in college. I actually quit smoking and uh, used the money I saved to buy a camera. So that was my excuse. And uh, yeah, so just did it on my own most of the time until you know, several years into my job. And then finally the BLM bought me a camera. Uh, and at that point you realize, Hey, this is, this is actually part of, part of what I do. And, and I get to get to travel and both see and document the, these remarkable places. Yeah, I was still actually, I was in Northwest California when I, when digital photography came into play and um, so that that just exploded the exposure of my photos to different uh, mm-hmm. folks across the agency and, and other organizations because you could just email stuff back and forth. So I got a couple of uh, uh, gigs where they asked me to go out and photograph different areas around the West. Um, and then I landed a dream detail it was the 10th anniversary of the Bureau's National Conservation Lands, which is our family of conservation designations and they wanted someone to get some photographs for the celebration. So I was out for three months, one spring photographing, uh, constantly all around the Southwest. So that, and that really kicked it into, to higher gear where I was able to get out. Uh, sometimes I'll get out up to six, seven weeks a year, uh, doing photography. So it's, it's a great side gig. So, when you're out there shooting, what what does your your day look like? Are you are you heading out and and camping somewhere early so you can be there before sunrise? Are you scoping out places for for a day or two ahead of time? What's your what's your workflow like when you're when you're shooting? Yeah, I, I kind of call it guerrilla photography because I I don't have the luxury of staying in one place for long periods of time to get that perfect shot. So there's a lot of times where I won't have been to an area until I get out there an hour before sunrise at, at 4 a.m. And then as the the d- dawn starts breaking, I'll notice, oh my gosh, I should be up on that hill a quarter mile away. So I'll you know <laughs> do the best I can to get to the good spot. Uh, mm-hmm. Google Earth has helped that quite a bit. Uh, where I can, you know, look at areas before I get sure. there. But there were so many times early on where I would just be mesmerized by these landscapes that uh, came upon me when in the dawn light. So, so yeah, I always say afternoons for napping on long summer days, and then I'll go back out in the evening for the golden hour, and then sometimes I'll be out all night doing night sky photography. So it, there's no day that's the mm-hmm. same, it's, but very long days. I was going to say, if, you, if you're shooting sunrise and sunset and then some, some astrophotography uh, at night, that is, that is a, a long day indeed. You sent along some of your favorite shots, and we'll, I want to pull these up here and talk to you uh, about them. If you're listening to this on a somewhat fancy podcast app, 
Uh, we will embed these photos along so you might be able to see them. Or if you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, you will definitely see them. We will do our best to describe them as well. If you are just listening or driving, please don't look at these pictures in the car. But uh, they're also linked in the show notes and they are truly stunning. Uh, so, and, and I love these because they do, they tell a story about the Bureau of Land Management and how it has changed and evolved over the years. So let's start with this spectacular shot of Brown's Canyon. Uh, and it looks like this is, uh, this is either a sunrise or a sunset shot looking down uh, at the river through the canyon. Um, wh why, number one, the, the reflection of the sky on the water, it is beautiful. You've got the oranges and the blues and some green from the trees going on. Uh, how, did you, how did you get this shot and why is this one important to you? Um, well, one thing I learned with um, especially dawn, well, dawn and dusk photography specifically is uh, right before sunrise and right after sunset is when you get these colors. So I've uh, often early in my Photography would be putting my gear away and walking down a hill and then those brilliant pinks would come up. So I always wait 40, 15, 20, 30 minutes after sunset. But this is this photo is important to me because Brown's Canyon was the first wilderness study report that I wrote when I started in, in Canyon City. Mm. Um, and Brown's Canyon was recommended for wilderness designation in that report. But I wrote five or six other reports for areas that we did not recommend for wilderness designation. And these were areas that were less spectacular, more arid. Um, at that time, wilderness was equated more to just recreation versus uh, ecosystem conservation. And I always uh, joke that we have alpine envy in the BLM, that at least at that time, if an area didn't have mountain lakes or trees, we <laughs> just say, oh, that's just a bunch of desert. That doesn't need to be wilderness. So to me, it's exciting to see that a lot of the areas that we didn't recommend back in the 1980s have since been designated as wilderness, including a few of the areas in Canyon City that are in part in, in the HR 803 wilderness bill. So I'm hoping Congress will take that up in the Senate and uh, get some of these wilderness study areas out of limbo and, and designate some of them as wilderness because they're truly deserving. And Browns Canyon, of course, uh, went from being a wilderness study area to now uh, a national monument. Uh, what does that mean to you when you see something over the course of your career go from a study you wrote in, in 1988 you know, fresh out of grad school to, uh, to a, a permanently protected national monument. Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting. Brown's Canyon. I mean, it, it's not only an amazing natural resource, it's a workhorse for the economy of, of that part of Colorado. It's, it's a very popular whitewater boating river and um, commercially outfitted river. So the Salida, Buena Vista, uh, Canyon City economies really depend on it. And it's um, to have that national monument status um, does some protective uh, things like withdraw it from mineral entry. So it will never have mining activities along, along the river corridor where people are boating through Browns Canyon and just uh, narrows the, the numbers of uses with, it doesn't lock the area up. It just focuses the use on the highest and best use in my mind for that 
that corridor, which is uh, protection and recreation. Let's move on to a sunset shot on the beach that, that you picked from the King Range National Conservation Area in California. Um, this is, I mean, it, it is classic. You've got the clouds, you've got the sunset, you've got the waves crashing on the beach, and a lone person, uh, tourist, visitor, uh, looking out uh, at, at the water. Um, a lot of folks don't think of California as having a lot of BLM land, first of all. Um, why, why is this area so important to you? Well, I moved up to the King Range in 1995, and at that time, just to have a stretch of coastline that undeveloped anywhere in the U.S., let alone in California, was amazing. You could go out there for days at a time without seeing a person in the backcountry. It's a 35-mile stretch of unroaded coastline just because it's so rugged and seismically active that they couldn't build Highway 1 through the area. Um, but when I moved there, it's kind of the, the evolution of the BLM in many ways, because the King Range was actually designated in 1970, and it predated our Organic Act, FLIPMA. Um, so the mandate for the King Range was very broad, allowed for a lot of different uses. And that beach that's in that photo was actually open to off-highway vehicle use um, when I first got there. It didn't get a lot of use. Um, I can't imagine what level of use it would get now if it were still open, but uh, we did an environmental sure. assessment to actually close it to vehicle use because we felt, in this case, the the best use of the most undeveloped part of the California coastline would be for non-motorized access. It was extremely controversial, um, caused a lot of uh, stress in my life living up there in a town of 1,500 people. You, when you're a rural employee in the federal mm -hmm. government, you don't leave work. You're, you know, all your waking hours. I remember ducking behind grocery store sure. shelves when I'd see somebody coming that was against the proposal. Oh. But, but anyway, now, you know, the area is designated as wilderness. Um, it's one of the most uh, pristine stretches of California coastline. And uh, I'm just proud of that accomplishment, even though it was very stressful. <laughs> um. Let's look at uh, another shot here from Carrizo Plain uh, in New Mexico. And, and you sent uh, a couple here because Carrizo Plain is important on for, for a couple of reasons. So uh, let's start with one of these shots uh, of uh, looks like a, a off-road uh, trail or, or road with some, some fencing. And you got low clouds, looks like maybe some storms in the distance and beautiful low uh low sunrise or sunset coming in across the 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 green here um talk to me about carrizo plain and why that's why that's important carrizo plain is it's another example of where the, the blm can be kind of a chameleon agency where we don't have boundaries surrounding our lands like a national forest or a national park so if an area has various resource values or public values we can partner with other organizations, agencies, as long as we have it in our management program and, and acquire lands in a given area or, or work to, to conserve it. And the Carrizo Plain is one of those areas where the Nature Conservancy, the BLM, and California Department of Fish and Game got together 
and acquired uh, pieces of land to block a 250,000-acre area up that uh, has the highest concentration of threatened and endangered animal species uh, in California. It's the last remnant of the San Joaquin grassland ecosystem. So it's a, a very special area. 99% of the time, it looks dry and desolate. And uh, in the spring, every few years when it's wet, it explodes with amazing wildflowers. So it's, it's a very special place. Well, and that's this second shot, which is from a series you took uh, during a super bloom in, I believe it was 2017. And there are some spectacular shots just of these flowers of amazing orange and purple and yellow lighting up the hillside. I mean, it's just truly breathtaking. And then there are others in this series where you pull back and you've got a couple of cowboys and a herd of cows right next to this super bloom. And I think that makes an interesting point of a national monument that is still a working land. You've got cattle grazing there. And, and I think it really does get to BLM's multiple use mission and mandate there that you can document all of this in, in one absolutely stunning photo. Yes. The, the BLM, um, it has a very difficult mission to implement because it's a very broad multiple use mission that goes from mineral production to full wilderness protection. And even in areas like national monuments, which are very highly protected areas on BLM managed monuments, we still do allow for a fairly broad array of activities, especially historic uses uh, that have been there and predate the monument like livestock grazing. And um, in the Carrizo Plain I was actually called down from uh, when I was working in the Arcata office. I, I was a planning coordinator up there. And the grazing program in the Carrizo was very controversial. Um, they actually stopped work on the plan um, because of some of the controversy around it. So I was kind of brought down as the fix-it guy to help them get started again and just was able to work with an amazing array of biologists, community groups, uh, ranchers, recreationists to come up with a comprehensive management program for that area that uh, I think is working pretty well. So, um, but it just, it does show that, that the BLM folks always ask why, why does the BLM allow grazing or mining? It's, well, that's the mandate that we were directed to uh, implement from, from Congress and the president. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an important mandate, but a difficult one to implement. As you over your career, as you worked on those various mandates and recognizing you're never going to make everyone happy because the ranchers want to graze more and conservationists want to uh, protect the land more and recreationists want places to to hike or ride off road vehicles. What is that balancing act like? Uh, and and how have you seen that? planning process change over over your years at the agency it's i mean it's a very difficult balancing act and and it's really difficult to orchestrate that balance between community-based um, input for those who live and work around an area and i think blm has been very good at that at listening to community uh, and stakeholder concerns but balancing that with national level priorities, uh, both for the American people and the administration that, that represents them and 
and uh, how they want to see the BLM uh, focus on various parts of our mandate. So it's been it's been interesting over my career. Um, there's a lot of talk about keeping decisions based in the field, but I've seen more decisions being rolled up to to national levels, and a lot of it's based on positions of national level organizations. You know, we try to to respect those, but also there's some cases where we would we have to do things like target shooting closures or OHV closures to protect a resource. And, and when that's rolled up into a position-based uh, national concern versus a locally driven resource-based decision, it, it, it makes it even more difficult to, to implement. I want to take a look uh, at a shot from the Eagle Tail Mountains wilderness in Arizona, uh, which I think is a wilderness area probably a lot of folks are not necessarily as familiar with. Even me growing up in Arizona, this is not an area I've been to. But this is uh, a, a stunning, it looks like sunset shot to me because you've got this, some deep blue overlooking a, a mesa or, or a ridge there, uh, some purples in the clouds, some some yellows from from the sunset. And uh, it is... It is breathtaking, both in terms of the, sca- the, the scope, the scale that you see of these mountains and the, the, the sagebrush in front of you. Uh, tell me about this, this wilderness area and how you ended up in this spot to take this shot. Well, this was during that dream detail I told you about where I was on the road for three months photographing the mm-hmm. southwest. And, and this was also before I spent much time on Google Earth. So I got here um, and the, the cloud deck was overhead and I thought I was going to get totally, um, you know, just be a waste of a, a, an early morning. And then the clouds started breaking and the sun uh, started burning off the uh, the clouds. And I realized I was supposed to be on the next hill. So I ran up to this particular spot and just, you know, everything came together at the, at the right time. And it's one of my favorite early images. Um, It's also one of the images, one of the ways that my name got out there was through social media, and it was widely used on BLM Mm -hmm. and department social media platforms, which were starting to come into being a little after that. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very special place to me. So this is the, this was during that 10 year anniversary of the National Conservation Lands system. Uh, number one, walk us back to what that system is and and what that marked in terms of BLM's development as an agency to have uh, conservation and promotion of public lands in that way become part of the agency's core mission. Uh, it's, it's always been part of our, our mission since the passage of FLIPMA, but um, it's just been coming into its own. Like when I started with the BLM in 88, even recreation was thought of as a nice thing to do, but BLM lands are more for commodity production and uh, uh, things of that nature. And that's evolved over the years. Um, and the national conservation lands uh, were really the a way to package all of our conservation designations, wild and scenic rivers, wilderness, wilderness study areas, National Monuments, National Historic Scenic Trails. Um, so it's our family of those units. And Bruce Babbitt was really the one when he was Secretary of the Interior that liked the BLM's management model of really working with the communities 
keeping areas in a really low key primitive, you know, explore on your own um, type of management versus the park service model of a visitor center and a, a paved uh, road looping through the areas. D- much different management style, which is good. It provides a spectrum for visitors. So he was really supportive and said, look, BLM, if, if you guys want to retain management of these areas, you need to step up and implement the conservation component of your mandate. So with national monuments, normally when they were designated, they would be transferred from the BLM to the National Park Service. Um, But with the first one, the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, the BLM retained them, uh, the monuments under their stewardship. So so that was sort of the impetus for the National Conservation Lands. What was that like inside the agency at the time? Was there a lot of pushback? Was it embraced? Uh, was it a, a combination? Because that, that does seem like a fairly significant uh, pivot point for mm-hmm. BLM. Yeah, I think, you know, like everything, there's mixed feelings on on what multiple use should be or what BLM's mission should be. But I think um, in general, and I, I'm uh, exposed to a fairly large cross-section of the agency when I'm out in the field, I think there's there's strong support. Uh, for this component of our mandate. I think, you know, a lot of these areas, the BLM has been managing for protection for decades. And and to get that national recognition through national monument status or another designation and not have all that hard work plucked from your uh, management and turned over to another agency, um, you know, it might not matter as much to the public, but it's sort of a, a slap in the face and a knock to the pride of a, a land steward when when something gets transferred out of your stewardship. The, the last shot you sent to talk about today, and I'm glad you did, is an iconic photo of Cedar Mesa in, in Bears Ears National Monument. And this is a shot that I personally have used any number of times. I've seen it lots of other places because it is a perfect sunset over the Mesa. You got the uh, the the sunbeams coming in, uh, and we'll we'll get into how you got that that shot, uh, you know, st- stopping down in your camera later. But uh, talk to me about how you knew where to be for this shot. And I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on the political controversy over Bears Ears because you are still a federal employee for another week. But talk to me about the importance of to you of being in this area and documenting it in that way. Yeah, it's it's a very powerful area. And um, I mean, the the scenery is immense and beautiful, but the cultural resources and the power of that landscape linked to those is what's most incredible to me. So to to be there was just, um, you know, it's just amazing. I, you know, I, I guess I will weigh in a little bit on, on Bears Ears in that um, that was a time where I was told to go out and photograph some areas before they became national monuments. And the administration, when they designate areas like that, keep, keeps that information very tight at the department level. So I was sort of in the know only because I said, oh, you need to go photograph this area. I didn't, you know, they never told me why other than sure. the, the, the landscape shots. But then this particular chunk of uh, Bears Ears was rescinded with the last administration. And as you said, we're not allowed to lobby as federal employees. But one of the things that I think is important 
is to to show people what these areas are like so they're not just looking at sheets of paper talking about rescinding designations they really need to know what these areas are and what their values are and that's where um, it's been an honor to have a lot of my photographs used to to demonstrate what what's in these wilderness study areas or national monuments or or other conservation lands or just other general BLM lands um, that are being used for a variety of purposes. So to help tell that story. Uh, I, I guess that does raise the question of how social media, how Instagram and Flickr and Twitter have impacted both your approach to photography and the agency's approach to letting people know about public lands. I mean, how, how has that changed over the last 10, 15 years? Yeah, I would say over, you know, early on in social media, we were all about getting the word out uh, for all public lands everywhere with a few exceptions. Most of our areas did receive relatively light use. Um, But I did uh, get into a few situations. One was in the Super Bloom and the Carrizo Plain where a post went viral and use ratcheted up and um, people were impacting the area. And it really made me realize, and, and the Bureau and the department, that we, we needed to be a little bit more careful at how we promoted these areas. So now, um, you know, in the last uh, six or eight years, and especially the last two or three years with COVID, where we're getting more and more users on public lands, we're being more general with our posts to let people discover We're not telling them specific coordinates for photo spots, things like that. Uh, Let them find them on their own and really include a lot of good ethics messages in those, um, which can be a little harder on BLM lands because we don't have a lot of hiking trails. When I worked down at the Carrizo at one of the super blooms, folks were saying, well, where's the trail to the blooms? And it's like, well, we don't have trails. You just have to be be careful and don't crush anything. You just get there. Yeah, that's right. So, and obviously a lot of BLM lands are extremely remote. We have a very low level of on the ground presence there. So people need to be really prepared to spend time out there to be safe uh, and uh, conscious of the ecosystem. How do you see the the Bureau's mission changing then as, as we do see certainly national parks filling up overcrowding during the pandemic especially, but even in the years leading up, especially to the Park Service Centennial, we're seeing more of that overflow from national park system going on to onto BLM land and Forest Service land, especially in places like Utah, of course, where they're absolutely spectacular lands mm-hmm. around the national parks. How does the agency, do you think, need to change going forward? How is there, does there need to be more of a focus, more of a, a more funding for crowd management, trail building services, that sort of thing. Um, you know, what do you, what, how do you see that heading in the next 15, 20 years? Yeah. It, I mean, it obviously more funding is important and, and, um, the BLM is the, the most, uh, modestly funded by far of the federal land management agencies, especially, for programs like outdoor recreation and wilderness. Um, so our management capability can't keep up um, sometimes with the, the visitor demands. Um, with the internet, most people aren't getting information from the BLM or other federal agencies for that matter on places to go, things to do. That information 
is on private websites, commercial websites. So we, we just have to try to get out ahead of that and work with uh, organizations and, and uh, commercial uh, websites to, to get ethics information incorporated, low impact, leave no trace, tread lightly in, into their messaging so that people can be responsible and, and hopefully manage themselves where they're out on the public lands. Because I, with 240 million acres of land, I don't, we're never going to be able to have individual contact with every visitor. So we, we just need to really get that, you know, you're responsible uh, for your safety and protection of your privilege to recreate here because, you know, unfortunately we do end up closing areas that get, get impacted heavily by, by visitor use. So, so it's in everyone's best interest to, to uh, practice good manners, as they say. As you're getting ready to retire, uh, is there anyone for you to pass the photography torch to, or are you hoping that that part of, of your job becomes a, a standalone position somehow? Could you, could you make it a, a rotating thing where photographers get to take, you know, three month stints to go out and, and shoot for, for the BLM? How, how do you see that, that part of your, your job uh, evolving uh, at once you leave here in a week? Um, you know, I think uh, things evolve over time. There's, uh, I have put on some photography training uh, later in my career, and there's a lot of young and up-and-coming photographers that, uh, you know, do it out of a passion. It's not necessarily, you know, even part of their job duties like mine. It's formerly my job description doesn't have photography in <laughs> so... Um, and so there are those folks out there. And one of the things I love about the BLM is the agency allows you, at least all the supervisors I've ever had to explore some passions as long as you're getting your, your core work done. And, uh, and I think so that, that will continue. I think it might be a little more dispersed, which is great through a a number of other folks. So I, I see it continuing. Um, what are you going to do next? You're retiring. Are you uh, are you hanging up uh, the the camera? Are you just going to pack up and go shoot on your own? What what's next for you? Yeah, well, this will be a self promotion opportunity. Um, <laughs> no, I'm I'm definitely looking at taking some time off and and having some relaxing time. But I, you know, I do want to continue to focus uh, on my photography, whether it be. Um, going out to do some gigs for the BLM and the other federal land management agencies or nonprofit organizations, if they're doing land acquisitions or something, anything that folks need to tell the story of, of why these places are important. So I'll, you know, I'll keep it up in at at some level. Call 1-800-BOB. Two (laughs) final questions. Yeah. <laughs> Call Bob. <laughs> we know what we, we'll link to your Instagram regardless. And you, know, I, you, you have put so many beautiful thousands of photos in the public domain over, over the last, uh, last several decades. I don't think anyone's going to fault you uh, if you put, put copyright on some of them, your work going forward. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, we look forward to seeing what happens, what happens there. Last question that I'll split into two parts. Uh, is there anywhere that you wish you had the opportunity to shoot during your time with BLM that you didn't make it to? And if you had one spot to go back to every day or every month for the rest of your life and and photograph, where would that be? 
Boy, those are both tough questions because I have, I've been to every BLM district in the main Western states and the East, except for Coeur d'Alene, Idaho of all, all places. So, <laughs> so there's micro areas that I would like to go to, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, you know, Southern Utah is just amazing. Those red rock landscapes and, uh, um, the North slope of Alaska, you know, the national petroleum reserve, Alaska is the largest single block of federal lands. And contrary to its, uh, name, um, it's a very undeveloped, very wild place. And you could spend the rest of your life there and not, not see the whole area. So there, yeah, there's a lot of areas I would like to go back to mm-hmm. seeing the Northern lights again in Alaska would be up there. Um, oh, and then uh, what was the second question? Yeah, I, it, it was more, I, I, places that evolve over time, you know, where, where is there somewhere that you, you go there in January, you get one thing, you go back in mm-hmm. July, there's another that you have, have discovered over the years. That's what's amazing. You can keep going back to the same place and you'll never see the same thing. So it's, it's pretty incredible. And that's what, you know, photography is a means for, for expressing your passion about another subject, whether it's people or places, or um, in my case, I love wild landscapes. So photography will always give me that opportunity to, to share them with other folks. So looking forward to it. Well, Bob Wick, wilderness specialist and de facto photographer for the Bureau of Land Management, thank you so much for your time. And congratulations on your retirement. All right. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Aaron. All right. Back outside here at Red Rocks Park. Gorgeous morning overlooking Denver. Uh, That'll do it for part one of our conversation with Bob Wick. As I mentioned, part two on the way shortly. If you are into photography, that's where we're going to get into the hows and the whys, the gear, the lenses, or how do you set your aperture to get those cool starburst effects off the sun, all that good stuff. Uh, If your eyes just glazed over when I said that, it's okay. Skip the next episode. We will be back to our regular Policy Wonk podcast before you know it. Do let us know what you think about this podcast best thing you can do leave a review wherever you are listening to this right now drop us a comment if you're watching on facebook or youtube today you can also drop us an email podcast at westernpriorities.org i'm aaron weiss on behalf of the whole team at the center for western priorities thank you bob wick for joining us and thank you for listening to the landscape mm-hmm.